chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. So Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. And as I've been saying for the past several, several Sundays, that we are um, in a section of Scripture that is in between Paul's teaching on what it means to be a Spirit-filled believer, a maturing, growing, Spirit-filled Christian, and, and what he's about to teach in the passage that we'll look at next Sunday about spiritual warfare and putting on the whole armor of God. And in between those two sections that Paul deals with the topics of marriage and parenting and workplace relationships. What, what, what passages that have been called the, the household codes. I think the point is that the Christian life, the, the spirit-filled Christian life is to be lived out in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our careers, in how we live with and relate to and serve those around us. That the battleground for spiritual warfare is in those same places, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our workplace relationships, which means our sanctification, our spiritual maturity, our growth in Christ is seen and measured by how we, how we live in these arenas, in these ordinary, everyday, mundane interactions, exchanges, disagreements, misunderstandings, and opportunities that we have with those that we live with and, and work with. Now, in our passage today, addresses how we work. And what we're going to see is that ultimately it, dress, it addresses for whom we work, because that's ultimately the key. You know, just as we've seen in, in, in the previous sections, whenever Paul addresses wives and husbands, he addresses children and parents, you know, I've, I've used the, you know, the same thing over and over again, that in these areas, knowing what the Bible calls us to do, it's not complicated. It's not, it's, that's not easy, but it's not complicated. It's like a good golf swing. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Hard to do, but it's pretty straightforward. And in many ways, working unto the Lord is not always easy to do, but it is pretty straightforward. And that is the, the note that Paul plays over and over and over again in our passage. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll read Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. So there's going to be three headings today. First, there's going to be a bit of an introductory word about Christianity and slavery. And then we're going to look at, that, see that we are to work as unto Christ and that we are to, to lead as unto Christ. So first, a word about Christianity and slavery. 
Now, I think it would be a mistake for us to simply jump into this text and begin to make application for our lives as employers and employees. I mean, we're going to get to the point of making a lot of applications for our working lives. But please hear me say there's really not a perfect one-to-one correlation between slaves to employees and between masters and employers. I mean, you guys know this, but I'm just going to state it anyway. That, For example, that we today, unlike slaves 2,000 years ago, we can choose to work or to not work. You know, we can leave one job for another job, whereas a slave was owned by his or her master. You know, for us, we, we enter into an agreement, and if you will, we, we, we sell a portion of our time and our gifts and our skills to our employers. So there's not a, a one-to-one correlation from Paul's day to our day, but we can, we can and we should, and we will draw plenty of principles from that. But before we do, the elephant in the room is that this text addresses bond servants or slaves and masters. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do? And I want to take some time to do, deal with this because I know that for some people, not for all, but for some, this is a problematic text because they, they wonder or they feel as if Paul is condoning or endorsing slavery. Well, Paul's not doing that. He's not endorsing slavery. The Bible doesn't condone and endorse slavery. Therefore, it's important that we have the right posture as we come to this text. And to do that, we need to keep in mind a few things. First, the situation in the first century was not like chattel slavery in American history. American slavery was primarily racial and lifelong. In Paul's day, slavery was not based on race, and it was often not lifelong. Some scholars estimate there were more than 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and that most likely means that one out of every three uh, people living in Ephesus were slaves. Also, the, the, the reason why the, uh, that this, Paul's instructions to, to bond servants and masters is here in this same section with his instruction on marriage and parenting it is because privately owned slaves were often considered to be uh, part of one's family. They lived together. That the, that the, that the, the business was a family-owned and operated business. And so listen to how one, one scholar and commentator puts it. Slaves did not merely do menial work. They did nearly all the work, including oversight and management in most professions. Some slaves were more educated than their owners. They could own property, even slaves. They were allowed to save money to buy freedom. No slave class existed, for slaves were present in all but the highest of economic and social strata. Many gained freedom by age 30. You see, it matters because it allows us to see, how, on the one hand, how much worse chattel slavery in America was compared to first century Rome, but also helps us better understand the New Testament's response to slavery. Right? Neither Paul nor the rest of the Bible endorses slavery. But sadly, it is true that some Christians over the century did misuse the Bible to justify slavery. Even some of our Presbyterian forebears did. And that's a reason, especially in, in the American South. And that's one of the reasons why in 2002, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, approved a public statement condemning such teaching. Okay, well, what is the Bible's stance towards slavery? 
Well, the Bible doesn't endorse slavery. I mean, if you think about you know, what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to love our neighbors, not, not to own our neighbors. That, that man-stealing or imprisonment against one's will, it's evil and it's wicked. It's the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. Right? Paul doesn't endorse slavery. Rather, when you survey his teaching in all of his letters, we see that he, he undermines slavery at, at, at every turn. Think about what he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 10. It's, 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 it's a long list of wicked sins, lawlessness, and notice what's included. Now we know that law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. See, enslavers, those who would force other image bearers of God to be their slaves. You know, Paul's saying that this is wickedness. He lists them along with liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You think about Paul's letter to Philemon, this short book in the, the back of the New Testament, only 25 verses. But in that letter, we, we read about this runaway slave named Onesimus. And he meets Paul. He becomes a Christian. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon to receive Onesimus back, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother in Christ. Look what we read in Philemon 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, Paul told the, Corinthians, the Christian Corinthians to gain your freedom if you have the opportunity. Paul also undermined slavery whenever he taught the following in texts like Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he's saying that, that, that there's no second-class citizens in the church. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. I mean, in our text, Paul's writing to the saints at Ephesus, Christians of this church in in Ephesus, and he clearly expects bond servants to be sitting in worship beside masters. He, he, he expects this, and not there as second-class citizens, but there, as he said earlier in Ephesians, as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So don't miss that. See, the gospel works in all situations and in all types of people's lives. No matter how lowly or and down and out you think you are, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. And no matter how powerful and influential and put together you think you are, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. So in summary, Paul wrote this letter to a small church amid a Roman world where slavery was not only universally accepted, but also considered fundamental, considered indispensable to society. Therefore, even though the church at the time of Paul's letter did not have the power to influence the end of slavery, Paul's instructions for slaves and masters, his proclamation of the gospel, set forth the very principles that ultimately led to the abolition of slavery. 
So it should come to no surprise to us that followers of Christ, like William Wilberforce and John, John Newton, led the charge to end slavery. Or as Pastor Ian Hamilton puts it, the gospel and its manifold implications confront the selfishness, racism, sexism, and greed that so disfigure every human society. Okay, so what can we learn for our lives today from Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9? Simply put, that we are to work as unto Christ, and that we are to lead as unto Christ. So first, we are to work as unto Christ. And you can underline unto Christ, because every verse, verse 5, 6, 7, 8, Christ is mentioned. So so what does it look like to to work as unto Christ? Well, first, it looks like to, to work with respect. With respect, look at the first part of verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So the, the, the Greek word translated obey is the same word given to children a few verses earlier. It means to hear under, to listen under, to pay attention to, to follow instructions. And so, so, so Christian employees who are, who are working as unto Christ are to to be respectful as they pay attention to and listen to the, the instructions given to them, the tasks given to them. But notice that they are to do this with fear and trembling. And, and that may be a familiar phrase to you, fear and trembling, because we, we see that phrase in what Paul writes to, to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So in in Philippians 2, the application is to all Christians regarding their salvation, regarding their their relationship to God who has saved them by his grace. And so with fear and trembling in Philippians 2 means to do this with respect and reverence. I think that's also exactly what it means in our text in Ephesians 6, that Paul is calling Christian employees to have a godly disposition, basic respect towards those who are in positions over them in the workplace. And Paul's calling Christian employees to have this disposition really regardless of whether the employer is is worthy of respect or not, or whether we agree with their decisions or not. Now listen, I know that can be hard for some of us, but I think the point that Paul's making is it's a supernatural work of the Spirit in our lives that as Christians, we can show respect even to those who are not very respectable. You see, Paul's saying that how we work has a lot more to do with our character than it does with the character of those who are over us. Or put another way, our response to them is not determined by their character, but determined by the grace of God at work in our lives. So that we are to work as unto Christ with respect. But also, we're to, to work as unto Christ with sincerity. So look again at verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And that Greek word translated sincere carries with it the idea of generosity combined with sincerity. Generosity combined with sincerity. Giving of ourselves generously and sincerely to our jobs to our careers, to our vocations. In a sense, giving, giving the best of what we can give to our jobs without holding back. In a sense, pouring ourselves out 
in honest work. You know, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And doing that over and over again, day after day after day, year after year after year, working as unto Christ with fear and trembling, with respect, with a sincere heart, even and especially when no one's watching, when no one will know if we were to to cut corners, take a shortcut. Look again at Ephesians 5 in the first part of, of, of 6, verse 5 in the first part of verse 6. Bond service, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. You see what Paul's saying? It doesn't matter if someone's watching us or not. It doesn't matter if they're going to notice what we do or what we don't do. It doesn't matter if they're going to catch us cutting corners, taking shortcuts or not. That we work with Christ in view and not merely to please our earthly masters, employers, supervisors. Not merely to please people, but ultimately to please Christ who always sees what we do. You see, we are to work as unto Christ with respect, with sincerity. And thirdly, to do it wholeheartedly. Okay, so look at all of verse 5 and 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. See, as bond servants of Christ. You see, Paul is reminding us of our identities in Christ. He's saying, listen, remember who you are. Right? This is how you, Christian, a bond servant of Christ, this is how you can work and serve in a respectful, sincere, wholehearted way that causes your unbelieving co-workers and those who are over you to take notice of how you're different and distinct. This is how you can be salt and light in, in your callings and your vocations and your careers. And people want to know, okay, why are you the way you are? Why are you doing this? Why are you working so faithfully and so hard? How are you able to respond to this the way that you are? That what Paul says is remember who you are, remember to whom you belong, and remember who you ultimately serve. And live not to merely please those who are your earthly supervisors, but to please the Lord who freed you and who made you his bondservant. See, remember that, that, that we are now bondservants to Christ. That we were at one time, you know, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were at one time, before God saved us by his grace in Christ, we were enslaved to our sin. But then God, by his grace, saved us. And he set us free. He set us free from the penalty of our sin, which was fully paid in Christ's death on the cross. But he also liberated us and set us free from the power of sin, the dominating, domineering, tyrannical influence and rule and reign of sin over our lives. That he set us free not to have no master, but to now have a new master, one who is gracious and who is good and who loves us. And who gives us everything, who laid down his life to save us. And it's to that master that we now do our work unto. We're now servants of Christ. And so we can and we should work unto him. And so look again at verses five and six. 
Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Simply put, you know, doing the will of God from the heart. That we're to work wholeheartedly. That ultimately the distinctive Christian work ethic is a matter of the heart. That's often the case, right? The heart of the matter is almost always a matter of the heart. And working wholeheartedly as unto the Lord ultimately changes our perspective on our work. We can be doing the exact same task, fulfilling the exact same job description, but all of a sudden those same tasks, the same job description, we begin to see it in a different way whenever our gaze is lifted and we begin to see it as work unto the Lord. Now, there's, there's a, an old parable that you may have heard, many of you may have heard, I know I've heard it a bunch of times, and so, but I'm going to use it, I don't think I've ever used it with you guys before, but it's a story of these three workers who were all working side by side, and it's very clear that they're, they're doing the same job, they're, they're building uh, this stone wall, and, and a passerby comes by and he asks the first one, okay, hey, what are you doing? And that first worker says, well, can't you see, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just chipping stones, Okay, and then he goes and asks the next guy. I mean, he's doing the same job. He asks the second worker, hey, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm earning a day's wage, providing for my family. Okay, and he goes down and he asks the third worker, okay, well, well, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a grand cathedral to the glory of God. Right, they're all doing the exact same job. It was a different perspective. And it changes everything. Right? I mean, this is true of the tedious and seemingly menial aspects of your job and your career. Is he doing it all for the glory of God and not your own glory? That makes all the difference. So let me ask you, friends, I mean, how do you view your vocation? How do you view it? Do you work as unto the Lord? Theologian John Stott put it this way. He said, it is possible to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house or, or, or the garage. I'm not looking over there, but the garage. As if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children. For doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them. For salesmen to help clients. Shop assistants to serve customers. Accountants to audit books and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. So let me ask you again, how do you view your vocation? This is often the case, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. You see, Christian employees are to be diligent to carry out the, the reasonable task given to them. You know, to, to work towards the, the goals assigned to them, to be faithful to their, their job descriptions, even whenever no one's watching them. Because we know that God is always watching. That, that our God, who knows the number of hairs on our head, knows if we're working wholeheartedly or not. That he knows. And, and Paul calls us to have a, a, a forward gaze, an eternal perspective, to, to work expectantly. Look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, 
whether he's a bondservant or is free. That Christ doesn't miss anything. He knows what we do. He knows how well we're doing it. He knows if we're doing it with respect and sincerity and wholeheartedly. So we ought to do it expectantly. Eager, eager to receive this reward from our Lord and Master for the work that we do unto Him. Pastor Ian Hamilton said, The cash value of heart obedience may not be evident in this life. It's often not. But whatever good any Christian does will, sooner or later, be acknowledged by the Lord. So do you understand what Paul's saying to us over and over and over again? He says, obey, work as you would unto Christ, as bondservants of Christ, rendering service as to the Lord, knowing that that you're looking for reward from the Lord. And so work as unto Christ, because he's your true master, and do all that you do for his glory. But then we also see, in verse 9, we are to lead as unto Christ. And so Paul has one verse for those who are masters, supervisors, bosses, managers. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And so again, I mean, don't miss that Paul expects there to be slaves and masters sitting side by side in this same worship service, hearing this same letter read. And notice what he says to those who are the superiors, those who are in charge, those who are the masters, the bosses, the employers. He says, treat those who work for you, who serve under you. He says, treat them the same way. He says, do the same to them. To treat those who work for you and serve under you with integrity and respect and humility and gentleness as image bearers of God who've been placed under your leadership, under your authority, under your care, and your desire as the employer, as the boss, as the manager should be to bring out the very best in them that you can for the good of the company and for their own good. And this is to be true regardless of whether they're respectful of you or not. I mean, remember, Paul is saying that how we work and how we manage and lead and supervise others, it's got more to do with our character than it does with the character of our employees. See, put another way, our response to them is not really determined by their character, but it's determined by ours and by the the, the grace of God that's at work in our lives. So he says, you know, lead as unto Christ, you know, doing the same to them. Second, he says, lead as unto Christ and stop your threatening. You see that in verse 9, stop your threatening. You know, don't bully, manipulate, abuse, or coerce those who work for you and serve under you. Treat them with respect and sincerity. Then maybe some of you are thinking, okay, well, Richard, okay, but what do I do? What do I do with a, with a difficult employee? What do I do with someone who's lazy, defiant, they're underperforming, they're incompetent in some way? Well, okay, I mean, that, that, that's hard. That's hard, and yet my guess is that we all know what that feels like. It's especially hard if you've taken everything else that Paul's been teaching us to heart, and we ought to do that. But I think what that means for those who who lead and who manage and supervise is that we always want to do right by our employees. We want to be more than fair, even if they have been lazy and defiant underperforming. Okay, so what do you do in that type of situation? Well, I think you be as patient as you can be. I think you try to help them. You try to develop them. I think think if if it's all possible, you try to change their job description. You try to help them do something that better fits their skills, their abilities, 
their, their interest, but also serves the, the, the company, the organization better. And it's not always possible. I know that's not how the world works, but Christian employers, bosses, managers, supervisors are to lead and manage as bondservants of Christ. Not only according to expediency and the bottom line, we are to remember how others were patient with us whenever we were, we were younger or we were struggling and we were, we were in a new role or trying to figure things out. And we certainly need to remember how God in Christ is patient with us. But in the end, after all of our efforts, if they're still not a good fit, if they're still lazy, defiant, underperforming, incompetent, you know, we do all we can do to, to help them move on well. You know, one of our elders one time um, told me this story. This elder was, he was in oil and gas, and so I know that narrows it down big time, you know, for all you guys. But he, he once told me of this story of a younger engineer who he was friends with, but then he became the supervisor over this guy. But then over time, he realized that that engineer was a bad fit for the role. Not a good fit, not what he needed to be doing. And the elder did everything I just said to you, but eventually the, elder had to be let, the, the engineer had to be let go, and he was furious at the elder. You know, he had been his friend. He's furious. How can you do this to me? However, years later, the former engineer reached back out to the elder to thank him because it had led to him changing careers. It had been a huge blessing for him and for his marriage and for, for his family, one of the biggest blessings in his life. You see, lead as unto Christ with respect and sincerity, not with threats, abuse, coercion, retaliation. And this brings us to the final thing. You remember that you have a master too. So look again at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. You see, Christ is the Lord of the slave and the master both high and low. Well, Paul says there's no partiality with the Lord. That before the Lord, we're all equal. Then we, we should all have the same eternal perspective. That one day, we're all going to stand before the same God as those who work and serve. Whether, whether we are managers, supervisors, leaders, or whether we're those who are employees. And friends, it matters how you have led and managed those under you. Have you treated them with respect? Have you been patient with them? Have you tried to work with them and to develop them? Have you been fair to them? Because there is a reward that, that is to come. I mean, look, look again at verses 8 and 9. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. See, we'll all have to give an account to the Lord. As a leader, manager, boss, you may have less earthly accountability, but remember, your ultimate audience is Christ. You know, is Christ. You live quorum Deo, before the face of God, every day. And he's impartial. He doesn't miss anything. Okay, so let me, let me end with this. Shortly before Jesus went to the cross, died, was buried, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven at God's right hand, he prayed. In John 17, he prayed in the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Okay, well, what was the work that God the Father gave God the Son to do? 
Well, a summary of it is found in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so do you see the, the saving work of Christ for you? See, by, by way of Christ, perfect, sinless, righteous life, live for you on your behalf, in your place. Jesus provides the righteousness that, that we lack in and of ourselves. This is the righteousness that we need to be clothed in to stand before the presence of our holy God. Then this is the righteousness that Jesus gives and gifts and imputes and credits to us when we have faith and trust in Christ. See, by way of his sacrificial, atoning, substitutionary death on the cross, which he died for us on our behalf, in our place, he redeems us from the guilt of our sin. He washes the stains of our sin away with his shed blood. And the penalty is paid in full for all of our sins. Not for some, not for most, but all of our sins. Paid for, canceled, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Jesus completed this work given to him by God the Father to secure our salvation. So why do I include this at the end of a sermon on work? Because ultimately the worth, the value of our work our vocation in this life, it's not measured by the luxury office or the title or the salary or the recognition or the reputation or the stock portfolio. The value of a Christian's work is measured by the well-done, good and faithful servant that comes from Jesus Christ on the last day, that comes from the same Christ who lived, died, rose from the grave to save sinners like us and who we will still stand before one day. Therefore, we should all work as unto Christ for his glory. And because of his work of grace for us and in us, we can work as unto Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we bow our heads and we acknowledge that as we come to the end of these last few passages in Ephesians, that your word, it, it hits us where we're most vulnerable, you know, in, in the most personal ways, as we're challenged in our marriages and in our parenting and our relationship with our parents, and in our workplace relationships with coworkers with those over us, with those under us. Father, I pray that, Lord, that your word would, would challenge us and convict us where we need to be, and I pray that it would encourage us and comfort us and lift our gaze, give us some more eternal perspective. May we see that we are ultimately working as unto Christ. 
May we do that sincerely and wholeheartedly. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.